Well, the time has arrived again for our midsummer respite as we celebrate our nation's independence. If my calculator was right on my iPhone, we're at 243 years. Sometimes I think, Lord, will our country make it to 250? We know that nation after nation has collapsed with a whole lot less years because of uh, turning away from the Lord and or immorality. Uh, nations seem to implode upon themselves when God is not the center. I think in God's providence as well, the adoption of Jefferson's declaration in 1776 happened during the best weather weeks of the year in this hemisphere that we're able to celebrate our nation's independence during the 4th of July. Uh, it would be uh, somewhat of an understatement to say that this coming week is deeply rooted in us annually for this occasion. But my question today as I begin, and believe me, I'm, I've got a point of why I'm talking about the 4th, uh, or the 4th of July independence as we look into Acts. But should we see this day any different as, a, as an American follower of Jesus? Now, if, if knowing Christ affects everything about us, it certainly should somewhat affect our view of what we see when it comes to the 4th of July. Let me give you a few things. First, we need to remember our fundamental, or remember where our fundamental identity lies. Don't you love that interchange when Peter is talking about having to pay a tax and, and the, the rulers say, does your Lord, does your king pay a tax? And Peter turns around and talks to Jesus and Jesus said, well, uh, does the king ask for taxes from his sons or from others? And Jesus said, you're exactly right, Peter, as Peter responds, it's others. But you know, there's coming a day when we won't have to worry about Uncle Sam anymore. Won't be any taxes paid to the Heavenly Father. Are y'all listening? You do understand that that's part of them asking for a king. They ended up having to pay taxes. And so uh, we need to remember that our fundamental identity is that we are the sons of God, not the sons of Uncle Sam. And we have an identity that is so much bigger than that because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, we need to embrace God's goodness. It's good and healthy to have affection for the nation we belong in and to. Natalie and I celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary yesterday. And we went down to C of O. Uh, you get some patriotism at that place, don't you? We enjoyed that, eating. And then we went out to Branson Landing and we were walking around. And lo and behold, here is Ronnie being the MC down there. And the military band is playing. And Nat and I were able to talk to Rick and Pam and Sarah. And we listened. And boy, I'm telling you, it's, it's good to hear I'm proud to be an American. It's good to hear that. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And we celebrate now. The media will tell you there's something wrong with saying you're proud to be an American nowadays. But I, I beg to differ. Something may be amiss in us spiritually if the Christian doesn't have some tempered but tangible sense of belonging to our fatherland. You're going to see that in the text today. It's commended. Uh, more than just something that we assume. We are, it, it ought to be commended to enjoy being an American. On the 4th of July. Christ and country are not irreconcilable. Read the Bible. You'll see that. 
We should have genuine gratitude for His goodness. We need to thank our God for how much common goodness that God continues to create and unfold and uphold in nations. Given what we see in our fallenness, right? I want to remind you folks, it could be a lot, lot worse. Given our depravity and the diabolical desires that have a foothold on our country and all around the world, it is extraordinary mercy that not only are any of us saved at all, but also that any of our nations aren't in worse shape than they really are. So true, folks. So, number three, we need to point others to the true country. Folks, we're pilgrims passing through. You know, it was never to the Israelites to hold on to a piece of property. Uh, God had so much more uh, in store for the people of God when he called Abraham. And if you read Hebrews, you'll find out that Abraham pressed toward a city whose foundations were sure. Not one that was fleeting, whether it be the United States of America or any other country. The true country that will necessarily... uh, satisfy our inconsolable longing like any other nation can is the glory which we will have in our eternal city with the Lord. Don't you look forward to that? Uh, We had a memorial service yesterday for Miss Colleen Johns. We will have a service for Mr. Cecil Hedrick on Monday. I'm telling you folks, this life on earth ends. It does. It ends. The fact of the matter is you need to look for that city whose foundations are sure. We should make our main object in our life to press others toward that city. And you can't do that apart from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no entrance into that city apart from knowing the God of the city. You've got to know the Lord God. So, in our, we need to let fly high the star-spangled banner of our independence. And let that be the gospel of Jesus Christ that can only bring true independence. Amen? Well, it's ultimately dependence on Christ that gives you freedom. So, just that reminder today. I want to also remind you that our God is sovereign over all the nations. Don't sweat the media. I mean, the things I heard over the last few weeks, or last couple of weeks, just, I'm like, this is unbelievable. Some of the things you hear. As a child of God, don't sweat it. God is in control. Do what we can when we go and vote. You know, hold high morality, standards, what we think the Bible is clearly teaching us in regard to society and the way that we should live and the things that we should do. But in the end, our God is sovereign. Uh, This world will not end by rocket man. I'm just telling you, folks. God controls the world. And when he says it's time for it to be dissolved, uh, according to 1 Peter, God will do that. And if you're in Christ, you don't have anything inevitably to worry about, right? All right, the events that are going to unfold today in the book of Acts are tied to the advancement of the gospel. And I want to remind you that that is the most important reason why you are still on the face of this earth, is to advance the gospel. You say, what about my wife and family? Well, if you've read the Bible lately, you'll find out that the reason God gave marriage is to teach the world the gospel. You can't do that through two men are two women. The gospel goes to the ends of the earth. Why? Because Jesus loved the church, his bride. And the bride responds to the bridegroom, which is an analogy of marriage. So even your marriage is to to present the gospel to a lost world. So all of life 
should be about advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we get to Acts, well, the whole book of Acts is about that, correct? But when you get to verse 30 of chapter 22, that's what's going on. And we actually know the date of the events that Luke is going to chronicle for us. One reason is Luke is a historian, and he knew his history. But also, uh, notice how he speaks of time, speaks of events and rulers. And when he speaks of these rulers that were ruling at the time of these events in Paul's life and the life of the church, guess what? We know from extra-biblical writings when these rulers actually served. So we're able to chronicle. So we believe that the events you're going to see today took place around A.D. 58. Luke is so specific in telling us this. So at the end of chapter 22, here's what we find. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So we know that we leave Paul in prison. Uh, He's saved time and time again from from beatings and from uh, the flogging. But he's still incarcerated. And on the next day, the centurion himself and or an an officer, a leading officer, tribune, this guy uh, probably wants to appease the Jews. Because remember, they're in that situation where Rome is ruling, but they want to have good relationship with the Jewish people so as to keep Pax Romana, to keep the peace of Rome. And so the Romans at this time in history gave the Jews a good bit of leniency when it came to their own trials. However, they could not execute someone and put them to death without Roman approval. Thus, you have the crucifixion of Jesus only about 40 or 50, well, probably 30 years, 25, 30 years before this event or less. So I think the Romans were happy to keep peace and the Sanhedrin wanted to do what? Get rid of Paul. Whatever it takes. So that sets the stage for what we're going to see today. And so as the gospel advances, I want you to see three things from our text. We're going to read uh, the first section, second section, and then finish out. But what we see in the text is the gospel advancing. And as the gospel advances in this world, guess what's going to happen? Truth and doctrine will divide. No question about it. That's going to happen. But also, as the gospel advances, what else will happen? Well, enemies will unite against the gospel. And then kind of the the third point is as the gospel advances, we're going to see that our God sovereignly controls all events and circumstances. And that is good news. All right? Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 23, let's see the advancement of the gospel where truth divides. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That little phrase... To this day, it's important. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. He's a pleasant kind of reserved dude, wasn't he? Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by him said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee. Uh, The the verb tense is continual. 
So he is continually saying, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Notice those two things, hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm actually on trial. And when he had said these things, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees, liberals, say that there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. He's in our camp, right? If a spirit or an angel spoke to him, we find no, nothing wrong with, in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to this man? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And verse 11 is just like our Lord. Amen. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must, by divine decree, testify also in Rome. So we see here in the passage that the gospel truth as it is advancing, divides. Can you see this incredible claim that Paul makes? Now this would be in line with Psalm 15 and Psalm 25 when an Israelite would say, I've got a good conscience before the Lord. Can you all say that this morning? Can you? Something to think about. But Paul says, I have a good conscience. All of the guys Paul was speaking to, Pharisees, all of the Sanhedrin, would have been able to say, I feel this way too. Because remember... They think they're doing God a service by punishing and trying to kill Paul. Because Paul did the same thing before he met Christ, correct? So they probably would have all said, I'm a good standing Jew as well, and I have a good conscience. But the thing that got them was that Paul said, up to this day. And why does that get their attention? Because Paul is validating what the gospel has done in his life. See, he met Christ as a Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, Benjamite, all those things. And yes, before, all Jews would have agreed, yeah, you got a good conscience. But what happened when he met Christ? Paul was saying, up to this very day. That's what irritated them. Paul, at this point, is validating the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying, during my time in Judaism, I served the Lord with a clear conscience. But now that Jesus has appeared to me, I'm still serving God. Well, better yet, I'm serving God with a complete conscience. A clear conscience before the God of our fathers right this very moment. In other words, he is validating the work of Christ in his life and before the Sanhedrin. So what happens in verse 2? Somehow or another, Ananias tips someone off. And the bailiff just goes over and punches him in the mouth. How would you like for that to happen to you? Just smacks Paul right in the mouth. Now, Ananias, of course, is the high priest. He, from extra-biblical writings, we find out that he was quick-tempered, and he was a pro-Roman-type priest. In other words, he was a pawn in the hands of the Romans. Very quick-tempered. He will be killed by Jewish zealots in A.D. 66, trying to escape from Jerusalem. So Paul will give a rather feisty response, will he not? He apparently was not wearing his WWJD bracelet. Huh? Right? He gives this response that is feisty. He 
blurts it out. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now that doesn't sound too insulting to us. God is going to hit you a whole lot harder than you ever struck me. But remember, Jews painted their tombs white for a warning because you were, de- you were declared unclean if you actually touched one of them. So it was more of a warning thing. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? You are whitewashed tombs. You appear to be one thing on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. So this was pretty strong. In other words, Paul was saying to them, you are a blatant hypocrite. Uh, Hypocritos in the Greek means a play actor. Uh, You're putting on a face. uh, Somewhat from what we get our term theater. And so, that's what's going on here. They're just playing a part. But in reality, they're lost and they don't know the Lord. They're full of dead men's bones. So, Paul turns right around and says, you're violating also the law. And that's found in Leviticus 19.15 and Deuteronomy 28.22. You've commanded physical punishment against someone that has not even had a trial. In verse 4, uh, those standing by are aghast. Why? Do you not realize this is the high priest that you are speaking to? Are you going to revile a high priest? Now I want to ask you a question. Do y'all think Paul knew that this was the high priest? I mean, that would be like going to the Vatican and seeing the Pope with that funny hat on and not knowing full well that that's the Pope. Right? So some people just say, well, scholars say, well, maybe his eyesight was going bad. Kind of like mine, you know? And he squinted. And, and there is a place where it says, and you see with which large letters I'm writing. And we, we probably can attest to the fact that uh, Paul had bad eyesight. That's not the issue here. Uh, some say he may have been squinting. Some say he may have just been straight out sarcastic. And that is certainly a possibility. Something like this. I didn't realize that you, old jerk, were the high priest. It could have been like that. It could have been that Paul just reacts without thinking. I mean, suppose somebody slaps you in the mouth. What would be your response? You're probably going to speak up. And you get slapped and you turn right around and say, God's going to slap you back. A lot harder, you hypocrite. Paul could have easily lost his composure in this moment. Do you know that God's word does not gloss over humanity? Doesn't try to touch up with paint the pictures of the lives of the saints? And even if we say that Paul just blurts this out, I think this is great. Because it shows full well that he wasn't Jesus Christ. He didn't respond the way Jesus responded. When he was reviled... He didn't revile back. When he was insulted, he didn't insult back. I think this should give us all hope that we don't all act like Jesus. Right? Here's the greatest Christian that ever lived. And if in fact we say, well, he was squinting, we can make an excuse. But I think the text seems to indicate more that Paul just responded like any man would respond. They get smart in the face. What do y'all think? You can think what you want to think. I'm probably right. But that's okay. But look what he does. Man of God, right? What does he do? He goes directly to the scripture. And he says, yes, what I did was inappropriate. You're not supposed to speak toward a ruler that way. Boy, I think our people in our world need to hear that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, whether Whether you know the Lord or not, the law still stands. Right? 
And so we learn so much from this. Paul at this point is going to show a level of shrewdness. You see how the doctrine divides already with his announcement that I have a good conscience up to this point. Folks, they hated the gospel. They hated anything to do with Christ and truth is dividing. But here we get a situation where you've got Sadducees and Pharisees in the Sanhedrin and Paul is shrewd and he knows it. Perhaps his goal was to just merely share the gospel. Which we could honestly say, man, this guy would share the gospel to drop of the hat no matter how difficult, strategic, no matter how things were going, he was willing to share the gospel. Or we could say that Paul knew that they were trying to thwart the plan for him to get to Rome. And the Sanhedrin would have done anything and everything they could to do this. So, the Sadducees were the theological liberals. You've heard me say this. They're called Sadducees because they were sad, you see. If you don't believe in the resurrection and angels, afterlife, and things like that, then you most definitely will be sad. And it would almost be like Baptist and liberal Presbyterians. I could pick on any other denomination, but you know, it's, it's almost like the fact that you have uh, this diversity of theological belief in one and the Sanhedrin was the ruling body. Folks, just think about this ruling body. And you had this much of a difference theologically. As it texts, Sadducees didn't hardly believe anything. But yet, the Pharisees believed it all. So the Sadducees were the theological liberals. The Pharisees would have been the fundamentalists of the day. So the council was made up of liberals and conservatives. Moderates and fundamentalists. So we have a group that is divided doctrinally. Folks, do y'all realize that truth divides? It does. So Paul says, by the way, Jesus said, for this purpose I have come into the world to divide. Man, we forget that, don't we? Husband against wife. Uh, mother against daughter. Have y'all read that text? Truth divides. In other words, what that means is, at times, your allegiance to Christ will cause a division in every other area of your life. Because we belong to Him and Christ, so this is what's going on here. Paul says, I'm a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. So Paul, we would have to say, still believed in the undergirding of Pharisaical belief. Wouldn't we say that? Absolutely, because Paul's going to believe in every one of those things espoused in this text that Pharisees believe. However, he's going to believe that the hope of Israel is Christ the King. Right? And it's Christ that resurrected from the dead. So keep in mind, he still held these basic fundamental tenets. The paradigm shift came when he met the God of resurrection. When he met Jesus Christ as Lord. So he is the resurrection and the life and the hope of Israel. So it would be like Paul. I believe 100% in the hope of Israel. You Pharisees believe in the hope of Israel. You Pharisees believe in the resurrection. I'm on trial because of a resurrection. And it's the resurrection of Christ. It would almost be equivalent to saying something like this. There's a difference between Catholic and Roman Catholic. Are y'all with me? If you've ever studied history, you know that Catholic simply means universal. So in the sense, when you read the apostolic creed, you're agreeing with the doctrine. So therefore, it's universal doctrine coming from the Bible. So you are, in a sense, Catholic. But not Roman Catholic. Massive, massive, massive difference between the terminology that we say. I'm just trying to give you an example. So we are Christians that belong to a universal body, but not Roman Catholic. 
so Paul says, I'm on trial for all of this. Resurrection of the dead. I think it would be like gathering Presbyterians and Baptists and saying, I'm on trial today because we want to dunk you in baptism. Right? I'm on trial today because we're going to immerse you as a picture of resurrection. That you died to self and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. Verse 9, this language is language for a fight. Strong language in the Greek. That man, they're about ready to throw blows at each other over this situation of belief. And so Paul uh, puts them in this situation. Whether he was trying to share the gospel or he definitely knew that he was turning the right screws to cause this division. But this is what takes place. And during the argument, what, what does the commanding officer do? We've got to get Paul out of here. Quickly. Why? Because they're going to rip him to shreds if we don't. So they get Paul out of there. And then in verse 11, we find that the Lord Jesus. And that's what I believe when it says the Lord. And it's in all caps, Yahweh God. It would be the Lord Jesus. I am present with them. Appears. He says to Paul, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you also shall testify also in Rome. I'm with you, Paul. Take courage. Your mission in Jerusalem is accomplished. You must testify for me in Rome. Is this not just like the Lord of glory? To come to us in the moment of our confusion? You think Paul was down? You think he was dejected? You think he was bewildered? Do you think Paul said to himself, I don't know if I'm ever going to make it to Rome or not. It's just like our Lord to come to us like this. And when the Lord says, you will go to Rome, guess what that means? It's as good as done. When the Lord said that, that's exactly what it means. Well, doctrine divides. Here's the second thing. Beginning in verse 12, we see the enemies uniting. When it was day, the Jews made a plot, bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. I said the other day 4,000. I got my numbers mixed up. Listen to this. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Man, this is serious, isn't it? They've been trying to kill him, but son, it really ramps up at this point. Now therefore, you along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell them. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, this prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The officer took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the officer dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things." Man, the enemies unite, right? And there's just plot. You've got 40 hungry assassins and or terrorists ready to kill Paul. They go to the chief priests and the elders. They set their plan. They make their vow. When they make the vow, they break the sixth commandment. I mean, these are really God-fearing people, right? How would you like to have these guys as spiritual leaders in your church? Right? 
they break commandment number six, they vow to do this. So we have a deal. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples in the upper room? There's an hour coming when those who seek to kill you will think that they are offering God a service. And it's a reality right here before them. So these men actually anathematize themselves with an anathema. They take an oath that ends up being a curse. That's amazing that they're willing to do this. They curse themselves to take this vow to not eat nor drink until Paul is dead. That's the spiritual leaders in Israel at this point. Think about this. It could have worked. Yet in the amazing providence of our God and using secondary causes, what does the Lord do? The nephew uh, figures the plot out. Now, I don't know. The nephew could have been a Jewish zealot. It's highly possible. But we also know from this that it's good op- good chance that Paul's family resided in Jerusalem. So, no matter what, this is how the providence of God works. Was this a real threat to Paul? I'm going to stay here unless you say something. Was it a real threat? You better believe it was a real threat. Was God's purpose unstoppable? All right. Was it? Was it a real threat? Was it unstoppable? Yes. Once this conspiracy is exposed, the officer acts quickly. Most believe at this time there would have been four to 600 soldiers in Jerusalem under the guidance of Rome. So think about this. 600. And then notice what the text says that he arranged. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen. And 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Man, think about that. If there were actually four to six hundred, how many people are we dealing with? 470. Two-thirds of the Roman garrison of soldiers inside of Jerusalem. The, the, the guy makes this decision. That this is what's going to take place. He says get 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go with Paul. Two-thirds of the force that would have been stationed there. The officer, I mean, he takes this seriously, right? Do y'all think that Paul could have possibly been growing upon this officer? Hmm, good chance. But then uh, he writes a letter to Felix. Felix was corrupt and cruel. If you made him mad... You were going to die. You're going to pay for it. And notice how Lysias takes more credit in the letter than he actually deserves. Listen. The Bible says, and he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now wait a minute. We know he's kind of adding to this, right? We know that the sequence of events did not happen and correspond that fast. As a matter of fact, it was about when he was getting ready to flog him that he found out he was a Roman citizen. But anyway, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. 
So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. Upon reading the letter, he asked what the province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So, he writes this letter. He details what has happened before Felix. It's a little self-serving. He certainly didn't want Felix to think that things had spun out of control in Jerusalem. And so, once Caesar, uh, Felix, once Felix understands... Uh, and he gets to Caesarea, he decides to hear what Paul has to say. Think about this for a moment. He could have easily dismissed his case back to Cilicia. But Felix decides to hear the case. Uh, there's conjecture out there. Maybe he was just interested in what was going on. What does this guy Paul know? What is he teaching? What is he preaching? Or it could have just been that he knew Paul was from Cilicia, and there's a good chance that Paul had some deep pockets. And maybe Felix could make a little bit of money. All right? Y'all know the narrative? Y'all ready for the conclusion? Here it is. In the advancement of the gospel, God governs all events for His sovereign purpose. Now folks, all of you read this narrative, did you not? Everything seems chaotic. Things are random. Things are heated. But all of these events are happening under the sovereign control of our God. God is orchestrating the events. As He had revealed to Paul that you are going to make it to Rome. In a few weeks, or, or soon, we're going to see this happening again when Paul is on a ship and everybody's freaking out and Paul says to all the shipmen, you can throw all the cargo off that you want to throw off, but I'm telling you, you guys are going to make it to Rome with me because I'm going to make it there. Right? He understood this. God is working in amazing ways as you read the book of Acts, through which means no one would ever imagine that God would work through. God did this to accomplish His ultimate purpose. To those of us who believe that God controls all things and governs all things, there are times when we think that if God is in control, He must do it a certain way. You have been guilty of that? God, if you're really in control, then why don't you just move this thing from point A to point B and let's get this over with? Now think seriously for a moment. We think it must have certain looks in order for it to be persuasive. Or if God is actually going to be in control, it has to look a particular way. This, this, this narrative is chaotic, is it not? It's heated. It's random. It's disturbing. Does Paul get rattled? Well, you got smacked in the mouth. You'd probably get rattled too. There's some difficulty going on. But God is sovereignly watching over Paul. He is orchestrating the events to fulfill his purpose. In this passage, we see a beautiful picture of concurrence and or convergence. We see the controlling hand of Almighty God and we see the free acts of men come together. You know, folks, this is the way you live every single day of your life. If you're a believer, the Bible says, and we know that all things work together for good. you got two qualifiers. If you're going to hold true to that verse, you've got to be called according to His purpose and you've got to love God. And we know that all things, that's good and bad, work together for good 
to them that love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Did Paul love God? Was he called according to His purpose? Then all things were going to work together for good. For God's glory is what we see. We see the controlling hand of God. We see the free acts of men. Is the conspiracy real? Are the attempts to take Paul's life real? Are there real contingencies going on? Are there some what-ifs in the narrative? Y'all talk to me. Are the what-ifs real? Look, folks, the mission of God had much at stake in every step of the way. You think about the divine plan of God to get the gospel to Rome and to the ends of the earth. Much was at stake. There was real drama, real obstacles, and real what-ifs. But God works in and through those details to bring about a greater deliverance and to accomplish His wonderful purpose. Paul left town on horseback, surrounded by 470 soldiers. He left town more like a king than a criminal. you got to go along for the ride, ladies and gentlemen. you got to think about God is working in every detail of your life to accomplish His purpose, and He makes no mistakes. Even on your li- in your own life, you, you look back on it, you think, well, I should have zigged when I should have zagged. But I'm telling you, when you start getting older and you start looking back, it's straight and narrow. I'm just telling you. That's the way it is in the Word of God. You can bring your human thinking to it if you want to, but you'll do it to your own peril. The Bible makes it clear that God is absolutely sovereign. Meanwhile, those assassins were still back in Jerusalem trying to figure out when they were going to get to eat the next meal. Y'all catch that little thing? They weren't going to eat and weren't going to drink. And Paul's riding out of town on a horse with 470 people with him like a king. And they're starving and can't find their next meal. God sets things up for greater deliverance so that he will have greater glory. Look, in the confines of the council of Almighty God, when He decided that He would create humanity, He didn't create you because He was bored. He didn't create you because He was lonely. He created you so that in the end He might receive glory from the creatures He made. There is absolutely no other reason why God created humanity. That in the end, He might receive glory and honor. I mean, why could it simply not happen like this? Paul walks out of the barracks, jumps on the horse, rides over to Rome, uh, to Caesarea, jumps off, gets a boat, goes over to Rome, and begins to preach the gospel, and it all ends like that. Man, wouldn't that be so much easier? I mean, come on, folks. You go off on a trip sometimes, and you ride about three or four miles and got a flat tire. And then you end up walking into a store, and you're asking for help with the tire. And you find out the man is lost as a ball in high grass that you're talking to. And you begin to share Jesus with him. And all of a sudden the guy starts, well, I don't know about it. And you start thinking, I don't know why all that happened. Wake up. God is in all the details of life. I think about when Merritt was born. We were living in North Carolina. No family. We were living at the gospel ghetto. Trying, starving. I made about $10,000 a year. My wife didn't work. We did everything we possibly could do to make it through school. And I remember thinking, Lord... Why uh, do we have this situation at hand where it seems that his birth and Natalie's health are all on the line right here? And on a Sunday morning, about 3 o'clock in the morning, 
and Natalie began to spot. And we were like, Lord, I'm like, i got to preach this morning. It's Sunday morning. And we thought everything was going to be okay, but it was two months before Merritt was supposed to be born. So we rushed to the hospital, and you know how the thing works. Magnesium was pumping in and everything else to try to keep, keep our contractions down. And it's, it's just it's, it's touch and go. And, and then, uh, but we get there. And four years prior, my daughter was born in the same hospital, and there was a nurse there who was outstanding that loved Jesus. And all of a sudden, on that morning of that day, uh, in September, in walks that nurse. She's the very first pe- person we see, and we hadn't seen her in four years. It was her last day on the job before she moved to Florida. And man, I'm telling you, it was like the God in the universe spoke to my spirit. And I wanted A to B. But God wanted all the drama. God loves drama. He does. So that in the end, He receives all the glory. And she was there literally. You know how that works. The nurses actually deliver the babies nowadays. And she did it all. But it was the hand of God in that moment that was forming us to trust Him. That leads to decisions down the line where you trust God. Now, folks, did, did Paul sit back like a hyper-Calvinist? For some of you who actually know what that term means. Did he? Absolutely. He was no determinist. He wasn't kicked back in his lazy boy thinking, Hey, I'm going to make it to Rome and I'm not worried about... Boy, these things were real, folks. All of it was real. But God Almighty was working through His sovereign plan and orchestrating through divine appointments and secondary causes so that Paul was going to make it to Rome no matter what. If God gives the decree, it is going to happen. And it was a direct decree. The contingencies were real. But here's the deal. When the king said, you're going to make it to Rome, he held on to the promise. Hey, if you're a believer, and the king says, I've gone to prepare a place for you, you can hold on to the promise. Amen? God is good. If the king says that when you're in my hand, no man will ever pluck you out, you can hold on to the promise. Amen? Look, folks, I'm encouraging you to trust God. You need to go along for the ride. If you know Jesus as your Lord, I'm telling you, folks, there's going to be difficulties and contingencies and convergence and, 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 and problems. And you're going to think, I want to go from A to B. But I'm telling you, folks, God's going to do all kinds of things. But if He's promised you B, that's where you're going to be. Amen? God is good. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. God, You are truly the God of all events and history. And Lord, as your people, we trust you. And Lord, thank you that you're working through circumstances and events. But we're going to hold on to the promise, Lord, that you've given us in your word. So many promises we have in your word. Paul needed to hear it. Lord, if he was a determinist, he didn't need to hear Paul take courage. He needed to hear it in his heart, mind. There's no telling what was going on. But when he heard the words, you're going to make it to Rome. Lord, that promise changed Paul in that moment. And we'll see it through the rest of the book where he had strength to stand before national rulers and share Jesus uncompromisingly. God, help us think about the advancement of the gospel. When we spend time with our families over the 4th of July, may that be the star-spangled banner that flies. It's the gospel. 
May we think about people uh, just looking around at Branson Landing right la- last night, watching people walk by and thinking about freedom. But, but most people don't really realize what freedom is. That freedom that we have today as believers is only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray if there's someone lost today and they don't know you, that law and gospel will strike them. What the law demands, uh, in that we could never be righteous on our own, we've broken all the law. But in gospel, that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, obeyed when we could not obey perfectly. And in turn, if we turn from sin and trust Him only, He gives us a righteousness apart from the law. That justifies us before the Heavenly Father and gives us a promise to access and entrance into glory forever. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.